Hey everybody, welcome to Three Point Landing, where we talk about comic books, movies, video games, and all things pop. I'm your host, Matthew. With me, I'm Misha. And today we are going to be talking about a franchise that just celebrated its 20th anniversary. So that means it is now entering its third decade. I don't think we're going to be seeing any new entries, though. We're talking, of course, about X-Men. So it was uh, it was a 20th anniversary for X-Men, right? Misha, I feel like you would, I feel like, no, I feel like you, no, I'm, I'm asking for sure because I'm trying to Google the thing. Yes, and of course, 20th anniversary <laughs> of this cinematic landmark. Oh, so it's the movie anniversary. Yeah, what did you think it was? Of, the like, comic book anniversary. No, I'm just kidding, man. <laughs> what, what does that even mean? We're, we're a bit farther off from the 70s than that. A uh, 60s, the 60s, right? <laughs> But yeah, um, it's been 20 years since the release of the first X-Men movie. It introduced us to Patrick Stewart as Professor X, Hugh Jackman as Wolverine, and um, pretty much proved to the world at large, coming off the success of Blade, that Blade was not a fluke. They proved that comic book movies could be taken seriously, that this was a force to be reckoned with, that there, it teased us with the promise of a larger Marvel universe to come. I feel like uh, at that point in time, it really felt like, like for me as a, for me as a kid, well, I was going to say a kid, but actually I was 19 when that movie came out. <laughs> it's okay. You can tell the truth. We all know you were 29. Uh, yeah. So when that movie came out, like it really came out of left field. I think at that point I wasn't really invested in expenditure. I saw the cartoons and right, you right. Know, watched them obsessively like, like any kid does, but I didn't really have like, like for real, you know how you watch things as a kid and like, you know, perform that, that, that passion, like you're a fan, but then you turn five to 10 years older and it seems like it's not as important to you. That's true. That's true. But and that's the case for me with X-Men, you know, uh, the 2000 thing, the movie. Okay. The, the, the whole thing about X-Men kicking off the whole Marvel age of movies, um, a good what, six, seven years before the first Iron Man movie, right? Yeah. Um, a lot of people looking back on it now don't seem to be as fond of it as they were back then. Is that because we've had so many better iterations of superhero <clears throat> movies in the years after, or does it just not hold up? I mean, what, what do you think? Um, I have actually watched the movie several times in the past 20 years. Uh, sometimes, like, as a, you know, I do the thing that they do for Marvel, like, oh, Days of Future Past is coming out, trying to rewatch four movies or something and stuff like that. And I think it holds up fairly well. Like you have to forgive it for a few minor things in the sense that the sort of scale that the movie is operating at really harkens back to a different time in Hollywood. So I don't think its limitations came at a time because, you know, people didn't know what to do with comic movies, but rather what like Hollywood was really willing to do with blockbusters. That's just my personal take. I don't think that Hollywood was averse to making blockbusters at the time. I think it was just a different kind of blockbuster. We were transitioning out of the age of, you know, the oiled up muscle bound superhumans of, uh, you know, of the, the Arnold the 90s. Swartz in, yeah. of the 80s and 90s, right? Yeah. I mean, Bruce Willis introduced the idea of an everyman in, in Die Hard in 87, 88, but... By and large, it was still the big muscle-bound meatheads who were ruling the box office at the time. Batman 89 
reminded us that superheroes could be taken seriously, but we all know what happened like three movies later. Yeah, yeah. I think X-Men holds up. I just think that people who don't look kindly to it have very different expectations of what blockbusters look like. I think that's fair because if you look at a superhero movie now, essentially 20 years later, and and what that movie looked like, oh boy, Mm. that is night and day. Um, In my review review for The Umbrella Academy, the first season, I criticized it for taking the approach of the first X-Men movie in muting down the color palette, making everybody essentially miserable, you know, taking a more, for lack of a better word, grounded approach to the whole mm-hmm. idea of superheroes. And that's why I love Umbrella Academy season two, because it just goes full bonkers with its premise. It fully they embraces blew, the, the ridiculousness the of its they source doors out, material. Basically. Absolutely. And with the first <clears throat> X-Men movie, I think it had been so long since Batman 89 and Superman 78 that it felt that it had something to prove because Blade came out the year before but for most, for the most part, Blade was an unknown to mainstream moviegoers. So they could have done anything with a character. It was just, I don't know. They had to prove that it wasn't just dumb luck that the first Blade movie was good. Yeah. And fun. And it still is to this day. So when X-Men came out and these were known superheroes because of their hit 90s cartoon, you know, there was a lot more pressure to succeed. So I understand why they had to play it a bit safer. They had yeah. to ground everything with, you know, the dark outfits, the, 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 everybody had some form of angst. It just wasn't as fun as it could have been, in my opinion. It was okay, but it's like the first Harry Potter movie. It's clearly just place setting. Oh, that's, that's interesting. Yeah, it's definitely, I think you're right. It's place setting. I think one of the things that's very curious about the, X, about the original X-Men movie is that I think this speaks to what you said about the 90s being full of oily, you know, muscle-bound action, action men like carrying the the, mod, the the blockbusters this time, is that the original X-Men movie is still anchored around the idea of the Wolverine character. You know, it's still very much like a Wolverine piece. And, you know, the rest of the actors in that movie are super troopers. So they, you know, handle their, um, their characters well, but it's still basically like still stuffed into that like shape of a, of a you know, man- action movie thing you know and then and then you know patrick stewart and ian mckellen are there to sort of like ground the thing with a lot more gravitas and scope well if you look back if you remember from the very first scene that movie goes dark pretty quick it opens in auschwitz yeah with famously, you know famously with, you know like with young young magneto as a young holocaust uh victim and that's mm-hmm. the first time his powers manifest um, as far as I'm concerned, opening it that way just let you know from the get-go exactly what kind of world you were going to be stepping into, what kind of uh, worldview this character who had been put through that would actually have. And at the, some level, I know there are people who agree with Magneto, and I don't blame them. That's what <laughs> I've always loved about his interactions with Charles Xavier, because either one of them could be right at any given time. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, th- that's why... I think once you forgive X-Men and see it for what it's good at, which is the place setting, the, the, the gravitas, the relatability of these contrasting philosophies, you know, I think it really allows the next movie to really like shine um, X2 X-Men United by still operate, by still like, by making some more of these characters feel more rounded out. Mm, 
well, that's fine. I, I think, yeah, that is true to some degree. But I mean, what else, did you think of X2? I really liked it. <laughs> <laughs> it was actually on my list. I think it still is. It's one of my favorite um, superhero movie going experiences. Just for the mere fact that, you know how the first one grounded the X U the cinematic X universe with Auschwitz and told you, you know, this is going to be dark and you know we're going to be talking about prejudice and all that sort of thing. The second movie is a comic book movie in a more pure sense than the first one. It's still grounded in that in the dark outfits and the yeah, dark I mean, attitudes. Nobody's nobody's wearing like red and yellow or anything like that or or, or ye- yellow uh, spandex. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I was trying to avoid quoting that line because it's been thoroughly, mo- thoroughly mocked across I, the I internet. Know. But you know, know. Uh, yeah, definitely. But you know, yellow is a, a recurring highlight in the in the X Men comics, near as I can tell. But to be fair, okay, after the first X Men movie came out, Spider Man One came out with Tobey Maguire, and uh-huh. that was just bright and colorful, and it embraced the '60s and '70s style of the of the Marvel comics that he came from. So I think between the first X Men movie success and then Spider Man's success right after that, that made them more confident push the envelope with X-Men 2. And yeah. you can see that in the first scene, same as the first one. In the se- first scene of the second one, you got Nightcrawler going after Secret Service agents, trying to get to the president. And, you know, I remember the entire theater, we were on the edge of our seats because we'd never seen anything so fluid, so dynamic. It's like, that is exactly how you would use Nightcrawler's powers. And if you've been reading about him for like 20 years before that point, you know, you it just blew our minds. Yeah, I think you're right. Like the whole, like Spider-Man basically was very exhilarating. And that sense of exhilaration was what was needed in the X-Men movies with X-Men X2. And that Nightcrawler scene, like, oh man, uh, you know, my, like my hats off to uh, Alan Cumming for really like making that character shine. No argument. I mean, absolutely. And that's, Something I think the second movie did very well. It took the characters that were introduced in the first one and it fleshed them out, honestly. It yeah. gave them more room to breathe. It, it, it basically, <clears throat> it trusted the audience more, that the audience would accept these characters mm. for who and what they were. And I think that even pushing the metaphor of the outsiders, the outsiders looking in on mainstream society, afraid of being judged, was handled very well here. Fine, yeah. Um, there's been some discussion about exactly what Singer was going for, especially given his, you know, predilections, but his dalliances, rather. I think they handled the Iceman coming out to his family thing very well. Yeah, yeah. One, ex- of the, one of the characters that I also like in this movie, from uh, looking back, is Pyro. Oh, yeah, that guy was just having a ball. Uh, yeah, yeah. Like, uh, you know, he's, he's scenery chewing, but, you know, it's really good scenery chewing, you know what I mean? <clears throat> um, yeah, no argument. Um, um, you know those mutants you hear about on the news? I'm the worst kind. <laughs> <laughs> Three-point landing! Something that they absolutely nailed, absolutely nailed, I don't care which X-Men movie you're watching, is Patrick Stewart as Professor X and Ian McKellen as Magneto. Those two are just <clears throat> spot on. Absolutely. You buy it, that there's history between these two, there's animosity, but there's still a mutual respect. So, Mm -hmm. you know, you don't disbelieve it when Professor Xavier would visit Magneto in his plastic prison, you know? Because you know that that's the kind of relationship they have. (laughs) 
they are diametric. They are diametric. Yeah, they are diametrically opposed <laughs> in their worldviews, but they essentially want the same thing. Yeah, you know, I, I, what I think is really cool about this take on Magneto is that they one hundred percent commit to the idea that Magneto is a survivor of, of World War II. Now that is canonical, yes. and you know, but. Can you imagine being the person in the 1990s, in the late 90s or early 2000s who's trying to like make the script happen, make the story happen and be like, all right, so our, our villain is going to be a World War II survivor and being the executive producer or the, you know, the financier in room and go like, wait, you're telling me the villain is going to be like, is, is going to be like eight, nearly 65 years old, 70 years old. <laughs> right. You know? and, 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 and I think that, I, it's very commendable. Like it's, it, I, I think it earned so much cred that they did that. That they made Magneto be an, a really, really old dude in the form of Ian McKellen, and he, he, you know, he fucking nails it. You know, there's this smirking, knowing, sneering, you know, attitude that Ian McKellen brings to the Magneto character. Just sort of like, you know, whenever, whenever humans or mutants thump their chest, saying what they believe in <laughs> or what they don't believe in or what is right and what is wrong magneto like mckellen's like brow communicates it all he said he's like i've seen it all before you know no i've doubt. seen so many different permutations of this this struggle and ideology in in my life and that's what makes that take on the character so special no doubt no doubt and another thing what do you think i mean this is an old analogy that's been made a hundred times but i want to know your thoughts what do you think about people who say that Charles Xavier, I mean, as we know him from the cartoon, as we know him from these movies, <laughs> he's, uh, or even from, you know, from the comic books of the time period, I mean, until very recently, you could have made the argument that Charles Xavier was Martin Luther King to Magneto's Malcolm X. Mm, I think it's, it's a convenient analogy. Right. Um, you know, and I think by large, as, as a binary, it's, <clears throat> it's, it's correct. but. I think both uh, both characters are more complicated than that, but we also have to recognize, and I don't know if this is within the scope of our episode, to that Malcolm X and Martin Luther King were also far more complicated individuals than you know the conventional telling of American history would like us to believe. Okay, okay, that makes sense. Yeah, because uh, because remember, like Luther King was like much more you know revolution friendly than. Than we like to believe, and I don't know if that squares with our expectations of Charles Xavier. And meanwhile, Malcolm X was a much, you know, kinder, merciful soul than, you know, his uh, sort of like outraged, you know, persona like tended to signal. Right, right. The thing is, you call it a kind of literary shorthand to refer to them as Malcolm X and and and, and Martin Luther King, but. Isn't that exactly the kind of shorthand that the X-Men have always represented? They've always oh, stood totally, for the, totally. the outsiders. I mean, the whole thing <clears throat> is shorthand for things that are happening in the real world. And that's yeah. why it's easy to ascribe these roles to them. Like, for heaven's sake, Magneto himself, being a Holocaust survivor, being introduced to him <clears throat> as such in the first 30 seconds of the first movie, you know, that is already a kind of shorthand for persecution as it is. And a mm-hmm. lot of people actually, and that even that, was something that was only applied like over a hundred issues into the original X-Men's run. He was not originally a Jewish survivor of, of Nazi persecution. That mm-hmm. was something they came up with later on to make him more sympathetic. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, by that, I think by then, like a hundred issues in or so, 
120 like, issues in, the X-Men were already being promoted as um, allegories for racial prejudice and all that. And people had already latched onto them as such. So I guess it was easy to ascri- ascribe these roles to them. Yeah. I mean, you know, honestly, I would love to do an entire episode just unpacking the ways that the X-Men work as allegory, as, as uh, you know, and how they speak. Because when we're going to talk about like the X-Men as a metaphor for persecution, civil rights and stuff like that, there are so yeah. many groups that that's supposed to represent, you know, like uh, the obvious ones that we already brought up are, you know, African-Americans and right. uh, Jewish people. But, you know, right. and Brian Singer, like injecting the... Um, the homosexual uh, experience into it. And, okay. You know, uh, but for me, I think one thing that uh, we don't talk about as much about the X-Men is like the idea of integration versus uh, rejection of humanity. Like that's a, that's a thing that, that gets talked about in the X-Men universe that, you know, uh, is really important to the mythos, I think. Um, no argument. And you're right. This can absolutely be served by a future episode about the X-Men comics and their own mythos. But for my part, I think it's incredible how much of this is taken to be gospel by people who approach the material through modern mm-hmm. eyes. They mm-hmm. forget that, you know, Stan Lee just came up with the idea of people who are born with powers because he was tired of coming up with accidents for scientists to happen. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Like <laughs> he, he, he said it, you know, himself. He was like, you know, I was I was getting. I'm not going to do a Stanley impression. I I'm not going to do a Stanley impression, but Excelsior. I almost did. But you know, he was like, I got tired of like I was having difficulties. What he said, coming yep. up with new ways to explain, you know, how characters got their powers, and he's right. like, what if they were just born with them? Right. It's just you know, just yeah. saying, yeah, they were born that way. Easy, easy. Yeah, yeah and, you know, but maybe again, they're born with it. Maybe it's Maybelline. <laughs> but seriously, coming from that kind of um, a formative background, you know, it's incredible and also noteworthy how much audiences ascribe their own thoughts, hopes, and fears into fictional characters. Because even if that was not the creator's intent, um, you know, for them to be taken as an allegory for the disenfranchised, the minorities, and whatnot alternative lifestyles that is what they became that is what they came to represent and telling somebody that's not that's and telling somebody that they're wrong for thinking that is out of line because mm-hmm. it represents what it represents to them yeah yeah i mean we all have basically you know the inner uh you know the way the way art and literature speak to us is about speaking to inner truth right so right. trying to invalidate that would be a mistake yeah. So much as what what made those two movies, what made the movies and the characters work, really is just how rich they are thematically, and right. how successful Brian Singer was able to execute on that. But unfortunately, um, the franchise could not hit a home run every time, and Uh-oh. that takes us to I know where this uh, is going. That takes us to uh, oh, X Men: no. The Last Stand. Oh, um, <laughs> <laughs> and I uh, yeah that. That is a movie. Okay, it's just to there. clarify, just to <laughs> clarify, right? Brian Singer at the time was the award-winning, critically beloved director of films like The Usual Suspects and Apt Pupil. And he got the first X-Men movie, did a lot of money, did a lot of business, good box office, good reviews, even if, again, if it was super safe. 
The second mm-hmm. movie, I think, made even more money because by that time, people loved the X-Men on the big screen. By the time the third movie came out, Brian Singer jumped ship to direct Superman Returns for Warner Brothers. But mm-hmm. Fox didn't want to wait for him to come back. So what yeah. they did was they got the director of Rush Hour, Brett Ratner, to come in and take his place to get the movie out by a certain date. Teacher, may I raise my hand? <laughs> sure. Tell us about uh, X-Men 3, Matthew. <laughs> so, no, but what I, what I heard, and this might be apocryphal or, and hearsay, what I heard is that um, the thing in the way the singer's contract worked was that he wasn't signed for a trilogy as is common today, or at least, you know, he wasn't, uh, they didn't have right. any hooks in him, right. so to speak, right? And Singer was waiting around for approval on budget and script for the longest time. And he was like, so do I have time to make Superman or do I come back? Do I not? Do I like, he's just like waving back and forth. And Fox kept him waiting for so long that that's when he decided to just run Superman Returns because they wouldn't give him the salary increase he asked for. Are they you serious? The budget, you know. What, what I remember was that he jumped at Superman Returns because he had no affinity for the X-Men comics. That is, that is, I think that's but, a motivating factor too. But Superman was his hero. Yeah. So that was his dream job, that he would get to essentially pick up where his idol, Richard Donner, left off with the original first two Superman movies. I mean, and, I, think, I think they're both. I think, you know, like, like and, you're saying. And Fox hired Brett Ratner to spite him. <laughs> that, that's, that's the version I remember or that I recall reading. And they did it to spite him as a giant you know. middle finger to him. And at the end of the day, yeah. We'll X-Men, never know. But X- I think, X-Men I think, 3 was a thing. Yeah. And well, I, I am frequently crucified for this, but I have a soft spot for X-Men 3. <laughs> because okay again because think about it we were like a decade out from avengers endgame you know we were like i don't even know how many years removed from even the first avengers movie so this was the first time in any kind of context to see any number of super beings facing off against each other and just unleashing havoc but with all their crazy wacky powers people flying through the sky people throwing fireballs and cars at each other you know wolverine being sliced to pieces but getting right back up this was the only time that this was the first time we'd ever seen the equivalent of a comic book splash page on the big screen yeah yeah i mean you know that golden gate bridge sequence sure is something you mean where it goes from day to night in like 30 seconds flat Yes, that 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 is what I was referring to. That that's something. <laughs> uh, it it it's a thing. That's for damn sure. Um, don't get me wrong. Okay, by this point again, by this point, Spider Man Two had already come out, and that was a, an incredible film. But it was still just one superhero, you know. Mm-hmm. So that's what made X Men Three appealing to me. I know it's not a great flick. I know it's it's terrible even going but it, it's 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 horrible especially considering what came before it are the first you two films me? well the first two films had their flaws but they were not as bad as the third one yeah. but again i still have a soft spot for the third one are you are you telling me that if you can make 200 million dollars with one superhero you can make 500 million dollars with five superheroes <laughs> i'm sure that's what some some executive thought <laughs> <laughs> But reportedly, but, like not to me, I don't. I don't like bringing in numbers too much on the show. But 
you know, but reportedly that movie made like $460 million on a $200 million budget, which sounds great, but like X2 made $400 million on a $100 million budget. <laughs> That's fair enough. Yeah. I mean, I remember X-Men 3 was ridiculously over budgeted. It did not help the visuals at all. It didn't help the story at all. And it didn't help the way that they told one of the greatest comic book storylines of all time, the Dark Phoenix saga. It, it just did everybody dirty, this movie, X-Men 3. It was crowded. It was crowded if, as hell. If I'm going to be completely objective, yeah, it was god-awful. Like, seriously. I still, as much as I love seeing superheroes face off against each other, I cannot defend what they did to, to the whole Jean Grey, Dark Phoenix storyline. That was god-awful. And that, that fact that this movie, X-Men 3, was written written by Simon Kinberg, who would go on to direct, write and direct the Dark Phoenix movie of I'll last get it year. Right. I'll get it right this time. I'll well, get it what, right. What the one hell more, was the studio? <laughs> why would you give the same idiot 10? I mean, why would you give him all the money and resources in the world to essentially remake the same movie he did 10 years ago? Well, you see, Misha, uh, you know, it's been 13 years. I've learned a lot since then. <laughs> one would think. Okay, but but we'll get to the Dark Phoenix movie. Um, after the, you know, let's say lukewarm critical reception to X-Men 3. Okay, it was murdered basically by the critics. But it made enough money to justify going forward. Um, that led to a couple of spinoffs. The Wolverine, uh, essentially a Wolverine trilogy, you know. That was supposed to kick off um, the first Wolverine Origins movie was supposed to kick off an entire series of Origins films for different X-Men. That's right. They were talking about like X-Men Origins colon Magneto at one point that never happened. And they did an X-Men Origins. I think I think they were even talking about doing an X-Men Origins storm at one point. But I, I could be mistaken. But the movie was so goddamn bad. Wolverine Origins. Let's not forget. That's the one that gave us Deadpool without a mouth. Mm hmm. That you know, they just scrapped all those ideas. In fact, when I like, they came, I, yeah, I like sorry. how dead. I like how with Deadpool, they look. You know, like comic, changes to comic book characters happen all the time. I will, I will under, tolerate that. And it's Hollywood. Hollywood is arbitrary as fuck. But I like how they looked at everything about Deadpool, and they're like, "What's the one thing we'll change?" Ah, the most important part about him: <laughs> the mouth, <laughs> the merc with the mouth. We'll present him without a mouth. We could we could have gender swapped him. We could have race swapped him. We could have changed his powers. They did. We could have. Yeah, yeah. He had, he had made him blast, older, he had teleportation. Younger, but instead, we took away his mouth. You know what? The logic of that. It's a prequel Deadpool. It's not the Deadpool you know. So he's not like that yet. Then that's the whole joke. He's the merc with the mouth. We'll show him in the beginning. He didn't even have a mouth. That's the same ass forward thinking that says Superman learned not to kill by breaking Zod's neck. Uh, tune in next week when we do the Superman series. <laughs> <laughs> Superman learned to appreciate all life after snapping the neck of his mortal enemy. Brilliant! <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> Oh my God! Uh, why are just, we, why are these people allowed to make movies? <laughs> anyway, moving. Wait. Anyways, moving forward. Um, they they they, wait, they went into limbo basically for a while. Not what, not because what? of 
any like real drama. It's just you know, let's make another movie, and then five five years later, <laughs> yeah. you know. Oh, wait. Just, okay, here's the thing, yeah. right? Wolverine Origins was god awful, but it still made money, same as X Men Three. Yeah. So they went forward with the sequel. It was slightly I mean, better. It was slightly better because yeah. you know we gotta admit in the films, just as in the comic books, whether we like it or not, people just love Wolverine. That number one, Origins Wolverine was sold on the fact that a Hugh Jackman is a charming bastard, and number two, they did it because Hugh Jackman is like a charming a bastard. Tro- well, I was gonna say a real trooper. Like he he is one hundred percent committed to this character. That's what I respect about him. I'm sure he's not. I'm sure he's not the kind of guy who's just gonna be like, I'm gonna do Wolverine even though it's garbage. But he definitely has a lot of ownership in that character to really keep at it. And makes me wish he, he had took. Taken ownership of Jean Valjean, but that's a whole nother argument. Ooh, music burn. <laughs> anyway, uh, I want to talk about the uh, Wolverine yeah. just for a I, very quick second. Yeah, I, I will not deny he was not who you would imagine as Wolverine, whether in looks, temperament, or height, but somehow he was able to sell it. They almost got, you know, there's an alternate universe where Doug Ray Scott was a very successful and, you know, iconic actor. That's true. <laughs> Doug Ray Scott was almost Wolverine, except John Woo went overtime in shooting Mission Impossible 2. So they had to go with their second choice, Hugh Jackman. That's why he is so out of shape in that first X-Men movie. He did not have time to work out. Yeah. Well, I was about out of shape, but he's definitely not cut as fuck. <laughs> he, which he would be in later entries, you know. Oh my God. You know, you, you can look at a linear timeline of the entire X-Men universe and you can see like movie by movie. Hugh Jackman is just getting more and more and more and more ripped. ripped. It's uh, like, you know, is, is it your healing factor that's doing that? <laughs> yeah, and, and mostly because, you know, mostly because, you know, the aesthetics of what is expected from a male action hero have, you know, intensified over the decades. But still, it's just kind of like hilarious to like look at those old X-Men one shots where he's running around topless and it's like, oh, he has muscle. <laughs> and then you look at Days of Future Past and it's like, what is that pound of beef? <laughs> <laughs> that so, is yeah. USD. Sorry, that's Australian grade. The, the X Men move, the, the the Wolverine movies were not great. The first one was garbage. The second was just okay. I have a soft spot for screwed, that one. I wanted to get into that one. I have a soft spot for that movie because they me, screwed up the villain. They screwed up the villain. They screwed up Wolverine in Japan. I loved those old stories. I love okay. I love this movie because it's weird as hell, and I, and you know me, if it's weird as hell. I'm all for it. Number one, the first half of the movie or the first seventy five percent is basically guy, you know, this gaijin in Japan story, the kind of stuff that you would see, you know, back in the eighties, like Ri- Rising Sun and James right. Cavill's Shogun right, and all that right. stuff. You know, it's that stuff. It's like ah, oh, borderline movie. borderline racist shit, basically. Uh, well, they're a little more tasteful than that. Than that. And then <laughs> it goes on. It goes on for like ninety minutes, being this really serious drama film about you know Wolverine dealing with the ghosts of his past and all of that stuff. Oh and my then, god, I hate and, you! I just remembered that Jean Grey's ghost is actually in this movie. Yes, and then at the very end of the movie, they're like, "Oh yeah, we're a comic book movie. Here's a here's a Viper lady." <laughs> And an old man in a giant robot. <laughs> That's my thing. What the hell did they do to Silver Samurai? The best of things. <laughs> they turned him into Megatron. I loved it. I loved the fact that he's like, Ugh. this old dude is like, I'm going to take your healing power by sucking it out of your bones. 
metaphor, by the way. Homoerotic <laughs> metaphor. But anyway, uh, <laughs> I love it. It's just so it's so bonkers and wacky. And I'm like, I'd rather have I'd rather have a mediocre movie be fucking weird as shit than be you know, than, than than be a mediocre movie that's boring as fuck. You know what? Jean Grey's ghost came out in the second Wolverine movie, in The Wolverine, and everybody, I swear to God, in the theater had actually forgotten that she died in X-Men 3 because it was so bad. And then here's her ghost giving him, you know, wait, was she, yeah, she was in this movie. She was a ghost in his, in his dirty dreams, and she was telling him to move on with his life. And everybody was just confused. It's like, wait, I thought this is a Wolverine movie. It's an X-Men movie. Why is she here? All right, she died. See, nobody remembered that she died. Well, you know, I was watching Dark Phoenix and then Storm showed up and I was like, who's that? <laughs> <laughs> we'll get to that. Okay, so let's park the Wolverine movies first. Um, somewhere between the first and the second Wolverine movies, they rebooted the X-Men franchise. Not by starting from scratch entirely, but by moving us a little further back in the timeline. They took us back prequel. to the 1960s. with Groovy, baby. It's a groovy <laughs> mutation, baby. It was called... X-Men First Class. You want to talk God, about I, that? God, I love this movie so much. It is. Uh, I, I, like it. I, I liked it. I enjoyed First Class. Yeah, I love it. Like, uh, it's a little it's a little long in the, te- in the teeth, kind of, as a movie. But, you know, just the freshness of seeing, like, you know, young Charles Xavier, super intense Nazi hunter Magneto. Oh, man. Know, yeah, he was Nazi hunter. That was awesome. Yes, I, know, I remember. Right? I remember. Like fucking, fucking that was brilliant. Bastards. <laughs> that was brilliant. Absolutely yeah. brilliant. And considering yeah. he he used to play a Nazi bastard, it made sense. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, Michael <laughs> Fassbender automatically improves anything he's in in the in the in any scene he's in in those X Men movies. Like just tonight, uh, as homework, I was watching Dark Phoenix for you got for y'all. You and, poor bastard. Yeah, and and every and you know Michael Fassbender shows up. And you know, my partner was like, "Oh, the movie just the, the movie is suddenly better for like thirty seconds." <laughs> and then the camera cuts away from him. Oh no, it got worse. Then it cuts back to him. And it cuts back. <laughs> no, here's here's the thing, right? It's like, no, no, he can't save that movie. But I, I, I can, I can, I will concede that Michael Fassbender as young Magneto and um, James McAvoy as um, young Professor Xavier. That was inspired casting. I would not yeah. have made the, those calls in my head watch, in a million years. I would watch a hundred Netflix episodes with them in it. I swear to God. <laughs> <laughs> they, they, were, they were good. They were good. And then the cast yeah. around them was actually kind of fun. You yeah. had um, Jennifer Nicole. Lawrence as a young mystique. Her then boyfriend, I guess. Nicholas Holt as Beast. Uh, who else was in this movie? Uh, well, you know, I'm not sure about the other actors necessarily. I'm not saying they're bad, but I'm saying like Lucas still has Havoc. Uh, but who I really liked for you a mean- hot second in the movie was Oliver Platt playing the man in black in that movie. I liked Oliver Platt. I Actually, Oliver Platt is another one of those actors. He makes anything he's in automatically better. No argument. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. And then Kevin Bacon as, as, as Sebastian Shaw. That was That was delicious. Dude, I don't think I've ever seen Kevin Bacon as a full-on bad guy before. Except in maybe the River Wild with Meryl Streep, but but you, you have know. not watched uh, Paul Verhoeven's Hollow Man. Oh God, I have. But to be <laughs> fair, remember what I said? I said I'd never seen him as a full-on villain. He was invisible in that movie. You son of a bitch. Let's pretend you planned that joke. <laughs> <laughs> he was invisible, and I stand by it. So I still haven't seen him as a villain. I'm sorry. 
Fuck you. You're deleting this, right? No, no, it stays in. I still haven't seen Kevin Bacon as a bad guy. No, 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 no. I mean, I mean, me getting me cracking and breaking and losing the from you bring up this invisible knot. No, I I like this. You cannot you cannot change my mind. Oh my god. Anyway, no, yeah. Uh, uh, and Jason Fleming as uh, Azrael. Yeah. Oh no, but there was one bad casting. Azrael uh, Azaz. I think it was Azazil. Azaz Azaz. Whatever his name was. I Nightcrawler's mean, father. No, uh, you. you uh, Janu- is it January Jones. Okay. She. Okay. There you go. That's the elephant in the room. She was. Boring she as hell. A, she was the yeah. worst. On paper, she could have been a good white queen, but in practice, I was so bored. She's okay. You know. Okay, so so she had the charisma you know, of a sack of potatoes. You know. You know how they say that for every opposite, there is an for everything, there's an opposite of it. Like like to balance everything out. Like so. So look at Gal Gadot who plays Wonder Woman. This right. is a woman who can read a who can read you know a list of like. You know, grocery ingredients, you know, a grocery list or a cheesecake menu, and it will sound incredibly compelling. Right? I think I, I think you're just projecting here, but I want to see where you go with this. I don't know, like, just listen to the way she speaks and she delivers her lines, even like I, I understood know. what you meant. Yeah. And then <laughs> January Jones is the opposite of that. Like for all the power that Gal Gadot has, it leaves behind this void. And this void is called January Jones. <laughs> oh, God. She's like the, the anti-charisma, anti-God. She's terrible. She's not interesting. She doesn't project intelligence. She's not sultry. She's not scheming or conniving or ambitious or power-hungry. Or she does nothing to convince you that she would be Sebastian Shaw's right hand. There's this part where she sleeps with a Russian, where she pretends to sleep with a Russian general. And she's just like, oh, my God. So close. Oh, Pretty much. Yeah. I don't think she was acting. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But all yeah. things told, another thing that I really, really enjoyed here was, besides the fact that we saw Charles and um, Magneto meeting each other and getting to know each other, which, again, put, I'm generally opposed to prequels, but in this case, it was done well, and I think it made great use of the 1960s time period because it, whether intentional or not, by taking us back to the roots of when the comics came out and taking us back to the roots of these characters, in essence, it was a soft reboot. It giving yeah. us a new locale, a new time period, it made everything fresh again, and yeah, I appreciated I- it for that. I think the, the biggest strength, like, you know, the biggest strength that First Class has, and I mean, when I'm serious here, is we, when we watch the first X-Men movies, we sort of, like, take for granted what their ideologies are. They're kind of, like, you know, covertly talked about between Magneto and, and Professor X, and it's sort of, like, also implied history. Seeing it play out in First Class is the first time we get to see them, like, really be young enough to act out their ideology explicitly. You know what I mean? Because one is an old man and the other one is in a wheelchair. But in first class, you know, you actually see Charles being the person who's reaching out to people and talking That's to people true. and sort of like, you know, trying to trying to be a, a, a you know, an ambassador right. know, for mutant kind. And this is also the first time you actually see Magneto with his bare hands 
not necessarily all his powers, just like really, you know, showing like his thirst for vengeance and his his like righteous anger. No, no argument. I mean, it doesn't help. I mean, fine. Granted, with the '90s X Men, with the with the with the, the original movies that were set in the future in this timeline, the 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 battle line, the battle lines, the ideological ideological lines had already been drawn. You knew exactly mm-hmm. what each guy was about going in. I mean, the trailer said it all. Trust a few, fear the rest. Okay, so there's no uncertain terms of which side that these two are on. But seeing them as young men, uh, find, trying to find their way in the world, I agree that that I enjoyed that. And the way that the two actors they chose to portray the younger versions of Magneto and Charles, I thought they played it as well as could have, uh, even better than one could have hoped. Uh, and that brings us to Days of Future Past, which is. I used to think it was my favorite. I'm a little less charitable about it now. Um, it's actually one of my favorites in the entire thing. I will take Days of Future Past, First Class, and X-Men 2. I will... Def- uh, okay, fine. I'll, I'll take Logan as well. But oh, we'll, yeah, get to, we'll, we'll get to that <laughs> later. But here's the thing. The thing about Days of Future Past, and I know I wrote a glowing review for it for GMA News back in the day. My girlfriend thinks I'm nuts. She thinks I... I'm nuts for liking this movie because it does as much of a hatchet job on the Days of Future Past storyline as X-Men 3 and X-Men Dark Phoenix did to the Dark Phoenix storyline. What are your thoughts? That that's that's her opinion <laughs> or, or or No, that that that's what she says. And I yeah. I I see where she's coming from. And she's absolutely right. It it's you know, the mere fact that Kitty Pride suddenly has mental powers mental time oh. travel powers that she did not previously have just because they were too lazy to write a new role for Rachel Summers. Um, my, 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 take on, my take on Days of Future Past is very brief, um, relatively speaking, which is that it's, the most, it's one of the more plotty movies in the latter half of the series. So I think at the time we were all blown away by this movie by how much plot it managed to cram into a single two-hour time frame Right. And how epic it was while also being very intimate and character driven. And <clears throat> it's through the fortune that we had such great actors, you know, at their command, Ian, Patrick, Jennifer, James, Michael, you know, all of those characters. Look at me, refer to them first by their first name, like they're my close personal buds. <laughs> um, you know, they they really like they can make those characters work even without too much direction and too much script work. And that's how Days of Future Past gets away with being plotty, despite an absence of real substantive character moments compared to previous films. That's true. But I, going back to what you said, I liked the mix of spectacle and character and the fact that it was able to juggle all the various continuities and casts. Because let's mm. not forget, first class was seen as a reboot that effectively took us away from the main line of the first three X-Men movies. But this one brought them together in a way that somehow was kind of coherent and erased the bad taste of X-Men 3. Because at the end of this one, you have your Back to the Future 1 ending where everything is hunky-dory and better than when you left. Yeah. yeah. And the fact that they had the cast all together for that not only legitimized the first-class universe, but also gave some kind of assurance to fans of the first two movies that their timeline, their universe, their characters would continue. 
Yeah, you know, I'm glad you brought that up about The Last Stand because, like, yeah, you know, you're right. Like, that's the first time they, for all of these movies, that's the first time they actually pulled off the whole big epic storyline kind of thing. And it's kind of a shame that they tainted that immediately after by trying to keep going bigger and bigger and bigger and not really having a battle plan in place to make that work in the case of X-Men Apocalypse and Dark Phoenix. Right. Three-point landing! And so, what do you think about Apocalypse? Because I, I, you know, God, what the hell? <laughs> We're... Uh, uh, but here, okay, so here, let me help you out with that one. With Apocalypse, I feel like this is days of this is this is where the, the the problems that I think Days of Future Past has start to fester. You know what I mean? So you have these strong actors who connect with the audience so well that the audience is able to do the heavy lifting perfectly yep. in bridging these character moments. Yep. That they sort of took them for granted and let the plot really, really careen out of control. And there's only so much that the actors could really do with that. You know, it, 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 I, I don't blame the actors for one second. In yeah. Yeah. It's like the, uh, the signs, the cracks were showing in Dark of the Future Past on the plot versus character dynamic, and they just sicken in Apocalypse. Um, thing about Apocalypse, God, where do I even start? Um, <clears throat> uh, uh, the thing about Apocalypse, good God, is that <laughs> I, ah, uh, okay, look. Between the Ivan Ooze bad guy and the absolute waste of a talented cast, you know, not even introducing fan service costumes could have saved this one um, because the action was boring, the visuals were flat, the performances were bland, the storyline was garbage, the villain was unintimidating. You know, there the, the Apocalypse had nothing going for it. Yeah. I mean, they explained why Professor X was bald, but nobody really needed that. <laughs> yeah. I mean, alopecia is a real thing. It's a real problem. Nobody should be ashamed of it. You know? <laughs> even mutants get it. <laughs> yeah, even mutants get it. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Okay. And that brings us to that brings us to Dark Phoenix, okay. which I just watched. As I said, I just watched it today. Okay, so okay, then I want to hear your opinion before I go into it. With Dark Phoenix, God, I mean, okay, so I'm really, I'm really fascinated by this train wreck of a movie, mostly because I just like freshly watched it. But here's the thing that I, that lingers on my mind about that movie is that it's really, really not well served by the fact that the characters who play the biggest roles in it are not really introduced properly. They're not really explored properly, both inside the film and in the film that preceded it in Apocalypse. So, you know, the film hinges on the relationship between Jean Grey and most of the other characters, like Scott and, you know, uh, Professor X and all that stuff. And it is, it's like, it's not convincing because I don't, you know, whenever they tell each other, oh, I care for you, oh, you'll come back to me or whatever. I'm like, I don't know who you are. I, I, you, true. I, I just I just met you in this movie today, and people yep. might say, "Well, you know, uh, they're doing this thing that like the Marvel Universe does, which is like you know, you know these characters already from the previous film." No, I don't. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. That's absolutely true. And you can look at characters like with the guy, you get people you mentioned, like Havoc, for instance. You know, 
he just disappears or he's just irrelevant at some point. And then you're going to bring in young Cyclops and expect us to get attached to him. Mm. And what, what, what was the point of setting this movie in the eighties other than making eighties jokes? Because if you look at it from any kind of point of view, these people were young in the sixties and they look exactly the same in the eighties. Oh my God! Let's let's let's, let's I, not I even go it, there. I could let Are it we, go. I could let it go a little bit in Days of Future Past because that was in the seventies. But this was really pushing it. By the uh, time Beast, you get Beast, but, Beast no. is fifty six in, in 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 Days of in in so yeah, Beast is about fifty six years old by the time. Yeah, uh, but he looks like Nicholas Holt. Yeah. So that makes him what in his seventies by the time he becomes Kelsey Grammer in X Men Three. <laughs> Come on, look at it this way. If we are to take the X-Men timeline at face value, then that means essentially 40, 50 years have passed by the time the first X-Men movie starts since the end of X-Men First Class. But apparently for 40 of those 50 years, nobody aged. Nope. <laughs> nope. Nope. That's God awful. I swear. Well, you know, my, my partner was like, well, maybe, you know, the... You know, maybe mutants age slower. <laughs> if I'm not mistaken, that's the canonical reason why Magneto will always be a Holocaust survivor as far as Marvel is concerned. Oh, they did that, huh? No matter how implausible it is that a Holocaust survivor would be as ripped as Magneto is into his current age, I think, yeah, they used the whole mutant power affects his aging thing. But nobody ever said that for anyone else in these movies. For anyone in these movies, in fact. That was the comics. <laughs> Which brings us to Dark Phoenix. And Dark Phoenix, I think, is like... Holy it's just, it's just shit. shit. It's a shit show. It's an absolute shit show. I mean, it's really fascinating because the movie asks a lot of big ideas, uh, but it just fails on, ex on, on exploring them. For example, it goes like, well... What if Charles Xavier isn't like really perfect? What if he's very selfish and self-centered? And that would be good movie, if they did something interesting with it, and not yeah. make it some kind of contrived thing that pops up all of a sudden. And the problem, the problem with that is that they 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 bring it up through exposition, right? And one of the biggest crimes in the in the movie. They do a lot of like you know tell but don't show, but in, instead of showing, right? Absolutely, and that and just a lot of a lot of dialogue. Sorry, that just frustrated me no end because. We kind of liked this guy in this first couple of movies. And then the third one killed whatever credibility they had. And the fourth one just made it worse. I mean, I'm on board for it. I'm on board for the idea of prob problematizing Charles Xavier. But if you're going to do that, then you have to know what you're doing. I, exactly. You know I, mean? I have no problem with that conceptually. I'm talking about yeah. the execution of it. Yeah. Because their execution was a character execution. Yeah, and 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 that's that's a shame because like you know there's another thing, and also the, the I have a problem with the dialogue. The dialogue is all like it's very loopy. It's very oh, like God. oh, Jean Grey will ask a person, uh, "Who are you?" You know, or whatever, and uh, the character will reply, "You know, maybe that's a question you should ask yourself." It came to the point where I told my partner, "You know, the dialogue is mostly this is a statement." Well, you're the statement. <laughs> you, you, you know, here's the thing. You know what that dialogue is? That's the dialogue of the Sphinx from mm. Mystery Men. Ah, you understood my reference. <laughs> <laughs> Bloody hell. Oh, I mean, like, what the heck? Like, I don't know. Uh, Again, 
I think their biggest sin here was trusting the same idiot who wrote X-Men 3 10 years ago to essentially remake the same movie almost beat for beat. The only thing that's different in this one is that there are shape-shifting bad guys that they are close to calling Skrulls, but they never actually do. And they have a superhero opening where they go on a mission to deep space. And here's the crazy thing. I actually kind of like that opening with the mission to deep space. My only problem with it was, how come the president of the United States has a freaking backbone in the Oval Office to call Professor X's minions whenever he needs them? These people were present, were present during the Cuban Missile Crisis. They were present when Magneto tried to kill Nixon. They were present when Magneto essentially tried to murder the world with its own magnetic polarities. So please tell me, on what, in what conceivable reality would the public, the president, the government at large, even trust these mutated freaks? Trump. Oh, <laughs> wow. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God. Yeah, I, okay, I, can, I can imagine that, yeah. Yep. Yep. He'll he'll be like you know oh you know I deny any ties to the mutants. <laughs> <laughs> no, he no mutant, no this guy mutant, would be all like mutant, oh I know Trump. them they're the, they're good they're really good they're the best I like them they're better no, than Captain America. Uh, no 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 you will be, be like oh Charles Xavier does not have a tape of of, of, of me peeing. <laughs> good God, but really just <laughs> that jump now okay fine you're gonna tell me that ten more years have passed since Apocalypse and this movie, the Dark Phoenix one. But I don't think that somebody who tried to commit planetary genocide, sorry, yeah, genocide on a global scale, yeah, the way Magneto did, would ever be forgiven in the public in the public eye. I mean, that's Not, the problem with these Marvel comics. For or any Marvel, of his mutant ilk. That's the problem with these Marvel characters sometimes, right? Is that these guys are like, Planet, are, are, these guys are like epic scale nuclear grade terrorists and they still keep getting like you know how people make fun of Batman and say well if Batman just killed the Joker or if Batman like or if if if, if Gotham City had the death penalty you know this would be you know this would be solved just get rid of Arkham Asylum personally with the Marvel Universe I'm just like they're worse because they have planet scale terrorists like Doctor Doom and Magneto running around and they're all like eh We'll never, ever employ lethal force against him. <laughs> In fact, let's get his friends and make them our favorite superheroes. But good God. The fact that, okay, so you have a tragedy with Jean's powers manifesting at the beginning. It affects her parents. Mm-hmm. You have her finding out that Charles has been putting mental blocks on her. She snaps. She goes to her childhood home. They have a fight. Shit happens. You know, it's X-Men 3, beat for beat. It's X-Men 3. Yeah, I can't argue with that, honestly. And honestly, at this point, you know what? No more Dark Phoenix Saga. From now on, like, moving forward with this franchise, wherever it goes, under the hands of Kevin Feige and the rest of his pals at Disney, Marvel, Fox. (laughs) Uh, You know, if we're going to do the Dark Phoenix Saga again, I mean, I don't know why you would do that, but let's let's <laughs> let's let's say strictly speaking, let's just let's just like fucking concede that they want to do the Dark Phoenix Saga a third time. They should never ever tell us they're doing it. But what? I don't know. They I should mean- surprise. They should. They should. It should just come completely out of motherfucking left field and never market it. You know that's what Marvel does now. As 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 the as the, as the Marvel Cinematic Universe has gone older and older. 
they have been more like heavy on the whole don't spoil the movie kind of thing. That makes sense. Also because right. it would temper our expectations of it. Exactly. Yeah, that makes sense. Just, 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 just say here's some mutants and then let us party yeah. these mutants for like three movies or something and then you know suddenly be like oh you know it's the phoenix but it's not who you think the phoenix is or something here's the thing no shit i mean marvel i mean sorry fox really shot themselves in the foot by calling their fourth first class movie dark phoenix because that Mm -hmm. set up a level of expectation that could not have been met both on the from the perspective of a fan of the comics and from the perspective of people who saw X-Men 3. This is so, what happens when marketing when marketing leads to decisions on titling. God. <laughs> Freaking idiots. Which um, brings us to, I think, the last film in our discussion. Because we're not going to count the Deadpool films. Those are fun. But I think they kind of exist in a nebulous state outside of the main X-Men continuity. I want to talk about, before we end this show, I want to talk about Logan, which brought an end to that character and to Hugh Jackman's interpretation of him in this X-Men film universe. What a wonderful swan song is all I can say. I really love that film. That movie was like, like I know the movie has been praised to death now at this point. Like, you know, it became the subject of Academy Award discussion. Am I right? Yeah, it did. It did. Did it get nominated? When I forget, I don't keep track of that kind of stuff. I don't think it won. Uh, I think it only got nominated for like technical awards. Mm, not even a script award or something like that. Um, let me check. Huh. Oh, it got nominated for best adapted screenplay. Oh, there you go. Yeah, best adapted screenplay. I, I think. Wait, hold on, hold on. Did it win? Yeah, it did. It did get nominated for best adapted screenplay. Apparently, it's the first superhero movie to get that nod. Yeah, nice, right? Like, I mean, I don't know. I'm so overwhelmed with emotion and like, <laughs> just trying to remember that film. I look, you know, I really like a movie or really enjoy the movie if I don't rewatch it, right? Because then what happens is it's not because I'm trying to protect the experience, although I guess that could be that. Like, I'm now now I'm now that I'm now that I've said it, now that I'm afraid of rewatching the film and being <laughs> disappointed in my memory. But at the same time, it's also because like the experience was so like wonderful to me that it's burned in my memory in a certain way that I'm just like, oh, okay, I don't actually really need to rewatch it to recapture that feeling. You know what I mean? Yeah, I get that. I completely get that. Um, that's yeah. actually why I have not seen any of the Lord of the Rings movies since I saw them in the theaters. Wow, amazing. I know, <laughs> but I think that might be changing soon because well, that's a long story. I like Logan because it was respectful to the character, first and foremost. Both Mm -hmm. him and Charles Xavier were done, were treated very, very well in this story. But also because it was done so well in telling the story of, it it, it came across, I think, intentionally as a story of an aging gunfighter reaching the end of his his, uh, adventures. And and, um, they communicated that brilliantly. And I think the fact that by that point, Hugh Jackman had been living, had been portraying the character for, I think, 17 years. That in, the audience investment in him in that role, regardless of what you thought of the previous X-Men movies, that helped give it a lot more weight than it probably otherwise would have had. And the fact that he was willing to step down while he could still pull off a decent Wolverine performance, I think, speaks loads to what you said earlier. 
about him having a deep respect for the character. Yeah. I love just, it because it's a beautiful, like, I think, I think for me, Logan is about not just the interrogation of the X-Men legacy and the X-Men themes in which, you know, it explores like whether anything they have done really like amounts to anything in terms of like changing what, how things go for the mutant kind. Right. But I also, it was about a movie about uh, a character making peace with the limits of what they can do with their life. Absolutely. And realizing that maybe it's okay that you've done maybe not as much as you would have hoped, but to have accomplished anything at all. Mm-hmm. And also Daphne, also Daphne Keen is great in this movie too. Holy <laughs> hell. Amazing. I, I like their dynamic. Actually, I also liked um, Jackman's dynamic with Patrick Stewart because they've known each other for so long at this point on screen and <laughs> off that their chemistry wasn't forced. wasn't It wasn't what it was in the first movie where their bickering was just so painfully scripted. It's like, <laughs> what do they call you? Yeah. Wheels? Oh my God, that's awful. Yeah, it's, it, yeah, yeah. But by this point, you get the notions of mutual respect, you know, kind of mm-hmm. like what Charles had going with Magneto. But in this case, it's more of a father-son thing. Mm-mm. If anything, I kind of wish that they could have had the Shriver back as Sabretooth from that god-awful Wolverine Origins movie to help close this one off. Because I think <laughs> that it would have been a kind of redemption for him. Because he's a great actor. Liam Shriver is amazing. But Wolverine Origins did, did him no favors. <laughs> and from what I understood, I think it was a scheduling conflict that meant that he could not be the, the, the clone in this movie, if I remember. Oh. But he would have liked to have done it. Wait, you mean, you mean Sabretooth would have been the clone? You know, uh, this movie has a clone of Wolverine where he has to fight himself. That would have yeah. been Sabretooth, a clone of Sabretooth. Uh, oh, a clone of Sabretooth. But Sabretooth died, that's right. Or it would have been Sabretooth himself. Actually, I don't remember if Sabretooth died. I just remember he got blown off the roof of the Statue of Liberty. Off the crown. I don't think we actually that's saw right. him die. Oh, that's right. Because oh. Tyler Means still plays the character. In the, I, I, no, that was the only time he played the character. You never see Sabretooth again after he gets shot off the Statue of Liberty by Cyclops. <laughs> well, No, I'm anyway. just saying. I'm just saying. It could have been interesting. could have been good. It would have been a good swan song for the both of them and essentially redeemed them both for that god-awful Wolverine Origins movie. And yeah, so that is the X-Men franchise from start to finish. Clearly, the X-Men film franchise has had its highs and its lows, but clearly it's also gotten a lot of fans. Otherwise, it probably wouldn't have lasted as long as it did. Whether you think that's because of the quality of the films themselves or the affection that people bring into the theaters based on knowing the characters from other media, let us know in the comments what your favorite X-Men movie is. Um, we'd really like to know what your favorite movie is and why, because clearly there are many opinions to be had. Until next time, this has been Three Point Landing. I'm Misha. I'm Matthew. We'll see you next week. seeing those like um those dot challenge things like on facebook where you put a dot and i'll tell you who you are stuff like that Mm, no i haven't actually well you're lucky um those things have been incredibly annoying the last few days but um there was one that kind of caught my i caught my eye something that's kind of derived from it um they said that 
your favorite X-Men character says a lot about you. So who's your favorite? And if you say Morph, I'm leaving. Shit. <laughs> uh, I'd say, ooh, oh man, my favorite X-Men character is Spider-Man. Me too! <laughs> <laughs> Firestar. <laughs> and his amazing friends. <laughs> no, seriously. Uh, you know, whew, my favorite would have to be Magneto. <laughs> yeah, I can get behind that. So, are you going to finish Dark Phoenix? I will. You want to watch it with me right now? <laughs> I don't hate myself that much. Okay. All right. <laughs> <laughs> Three Point Landing is recorded at Big Baby Studios. Follow us on Facebook at Three Point Landing PH. 